You're listening to the Bible uncut and unfiltered. We believe the Bible doesn't need to be watered down or cleaned up to be understood. Our goal is to provide a healing place to discuss the questions you can't ask and the context you won't learn in church. I'm your host, Colin Connor. Now, on to the episode. Noah's story may have ended in chapter 9 of Genesis, but he does get mentioned a few more times throughout the Bible, often in passages that can be quite difficult to interpret. So I wanted to take a few minutes today and look at those passages and also address some of the questions that have come in with this series. All we have on Noah's life in the Bible is covered in Genesis 6 through 9. But he is mentioned a few other times in the Bible. He does show up in a couple of genealogies, including 1 Chronicles 1-4 and Luke 3, but those don't really add anything to it, so we'll skip over those. I want to mention a couple of times in the Tanakh, in the Old Testament, that he shows up, because they're really unique passages. One is Isaiah 54, and in this passage of Isaiah 54, God is speaking to Isaiah and through him to Israel around the time of the exiles. And he is trying to encourage the people of Israel, which is really interesting because a lot of Isaiah's message has been one of judgment for the people's disobedience to Yahweh. Yet here in Isaiah 54, the message has started to shift. This actually comes right on the heels of the passage in Isaiah 53 that many churches quote at Christmas. It's the, who has believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed. He was despised, we esteemed him not, surely has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. It's that passage that many Christians cite in reference to Jesus. Now within the context, and this may be controversial to some, this is another topic for another day, but the passage itself is actually using the metaphor of this suffering servant to refer to Israel as a whole. Now, I'm not saying that we can't use it to have some meaning in regards to Jesus, but within its original context, this was speaking of Israel. And so God is trying to encourage them to say that even though you have had these times of trial, these times of persecution, these times even leading into exile, I have not forgotten you. I still care about you. I'm still on your side. And fascinatingly, he uses the example of Noah to get this point across. In chapter 54, verse 8, he says, In a little wrath, I hid my face from you for a moment, but with eternal kindness, I will have mercy on you, says Yahweh the Redeemer. For this is like the waters of Noah to me. For like I swore that the waters of Noah would no more go over the earth, so I have sworn that I would not be angry with you, nor rebuke you. For the mountains may depart, the hills may be removed, but my kindness will not depart from you. Neither will the covenant of my peace be removed, says Yahweh who has mercy on you. And it goes on to have some very interesting words of comfort that get picked up by the author of Revelation and used in that book as well. So this is a very biblically theology-rich passage, if I can make up a term there. This is a passage that gets referenced later on throughout the Bible. But I find it interesting that of all the people that he could use in this passage to bring a message of comfort, he chooses the story of Noah. Because as we'll see in just a minute here, pretty much every other time Noah is mentioned, it is in reference to some form of judgment. So this is actually a way of his looking at the covenant at the end of the story of Noah and the flood and saying, just like I promised not to destroy the land then, I'm also not going to destroy you completely. And that's interesting because Israel was not around at the time of the flood. 
So the covenant not to destroy the land was for the earth as a whole. And yet God is actually taking that covenant and juxtaposing it onto the story of Israel and saying, I am not going to destroy you. And that is a way that I am keeping the covenant that I made to Noah. So not exactly a traditional interpretation, but that's the one that Isaiah gives here in this passage. Really, really interesting. The only other time that Noah shows up in the Tanakh is in Ezekiel. This is Ezekiel 14. Really fascinating passage here. Ezekiel 14, verses 14 through 20, four different times God says the exact same thing in these six or seven verses here. Looking in verse 14 of chapter 14, it reads, Though these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, they should deliver only their own souls by their righteousness, says Yahweh God. And he again goes on to repeat that in verses 16, 18, and 20. Ezekiel has been speaking a message of judgment to the land of Israel. And within this, God is saying through Ezekiel that if you had the top three guys that you could pick from our history, the best of the best, the most righteous, we're here because you're looking for the best of the best of the best, sir. They would still not be able to prevent me from bringing judgment on you because of how badly you have been behaving. And that's interesting enough in and of itself. But what I find so fascinating is that the three people out of the entirety of the Tanakh that God picks as an example are Noah, Daniel, and Job. So it's like these three guys are the best of the best, that if you wanted someone on your team that just by virtue of their being there, God would be happy with you. Apparently, it's Daniel, Job, and Noah. Now, I think the connection that is made between these three men is that they all had other people delivered from judgment because of their righteousness. Looking at Noah, you might remember in the series I brought up that nothing is said about the righteousness of Noah's family. We are not told anything about the types of people that his wife, his sons, and his daughters-in-law were. But simply by virtue of being related to Noah, they were delivered. Same thing kind of happens with Daniel. While his three friends, Kananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, who we often know as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, though they are presented in a positive light throughout the stories, it really seems that Daniel is the one who takes the lead and is the righteous one there, and it's almost as if they are delivered simply by virtue of being connected with him and going along with what he is doing. Now, Job is a little bit of an odd one out here, because at the end of the story of Job, his friends are delivered from judgment by God, but only because Job prays for them. Now, in the cases of Noah and Daniel, we are not told that they interceded for their friends. It was simply by virtue of their being connected to those two men that they were delivered. But in Job's case, the friends needed to be interceded for in order for them to be delivered. So I'm not quite sure how that fits in. One thought I have is maybe Job's wife is intended. Perhaps she would have been wiped out with the rest of the family and the servants and the goods and possessions that Job had, but just by virtue of her being his wife, she was preserved. Nothing is made of that in the text, but that's the only thing that I could think of where he has someone who is preserved or delivered without needing direct intercession. And I think that might be the way to go, because there are other people in the Tanakh who deliver other people, but it's through their intercession. Moses intercedes for the Israelites so that they are not destroyed by God. Abraham intercedes for Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot 
But even then in the New Testament, we hear that Lot himself was righteous. So I think maybe these three men are the only ones in the story who have other people delivered simply by virtue of their own righteousness. If you can think of anyone else that might fit into this and ruin my theory, feel free to let me know. You can comment in our socials or send an email on our website. Let me know, is there anyone else in the biblical story who, just by virtue of their own righteousness, had other people delivered without needing to intercede for them? I have not been able to think of any or find any, so right now that is my best guess as to why Noah, Daniel, and Job are singled out here in Ezekiel 14. Then we have to move into the New Testament, and this is where it starts getting really interesting in how Noah is used. First, we have to look at Matthew 24. Now, I grew up independent fundamental Baptist, and so Matthew 24 was a key dispensationalist passage for many people, where it is used to speak of the rapture. And let me just read you a little bit of it here. This is Matthew 24, verses 37, and it'll probably be to about 44. But as the days of Noah were, and some older translations like the King James will say no, N-O-E, that's just the way that his name got carried over into Greek from Hebrew, but it's still Noah. So as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and given in marriage, until the day that Noah entered into the ark, and knew not until the flood came and took them all away, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Two will be in the field, one will be taken, and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken, the other left. Watch, therefore, because you do not know in what hour your Lord will return. Okay, this was ground zero rapture passage kind of thing. I would hear preachers talk about you don't want to be the sort of person who is left behind when God comes back in judgment. This is right along the line of things like the Left Behind series. There's even a song back in the day about being left behind. But let's look at this passage again, and all you have to do is give it one little careful read, and you'll see that that whole idea falls apart really fast. And it all comes down to verse 39. The people knew not until the flood came, here it is, and took them away. So will also the coming of the Son of Man be. So the way that I always heard it preached is you don't want to be left behind. When God comes back, you want him to take you. But look at this verse. Who are the ones taken and who are the ones left behind? They didn't know until the flood came and took them all away. So according to this, the people who are taken are not the righteous. They are the wicked. They are the people who were violent on the earth and got killed in the flood. They were taken away from life from the earth by the flood. The ones who were left were Noah and his family. So depending on what tradition you came from and what you've heard before, this passage may be completely different from what you've heard preached. I know it certainly was for me. This has nothing to do with a rapture. This has nothing to do with God's returning and taking faithful people back to heaven with him. This has everything to do with a day of future judgment where God will return and take away life from the people who have been violent against other people. Jesus was not warning about a rapture where you should be ready to be taken away. He was warning about future coming judgment where oppressive people would be taken away from the land in judgment just like the people who were killed in the flood. 
And guess what happened about 40 years after Jesus' ministry? Jerusalem was destroyed by Rome in AD 70. This passage is not about a future rapture. It is about the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, when just like that flood wiped out all of the violent, wicked people in the land at that time, that part of the land under the Roman Empire was completely destroyed. So Noah's story is being used as a warning of future judgment that was to come. And when I say future, future relative to Jesus' time. It is now past to us almost by 2,000 years. This passage, I guess you could say, was fulfilled in a way in AD 70. It was Jesus' warning about very near judgment that was going to happen. This same passage gets repeated in a parallel in Luke 17, so we can skip over that. It's the exact same thing as what we just addressed in Matthew 24. Then Noah shows up next in Hebrews 11, and this is what many Christians call the Hall of Faith. Verse 7 is dedicated to Noah. It says, By faith Noah, being warned of God of things not as yet seen, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world, and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. Interestingly, that phrase, moved with fear, has more the idea of reverence or respect, or perhaps even caution. It's as if maybe he wasn't certain about what was going to happen, but he decided it would be better to be wrong on this and go ahead and do it than to not do it and end up being wrong. So he builds the ark and he condemns, or a better way to say that would be he judged the world by the building of his ark. Now I know some people who will use this verse to talk about his preaching at the world, and we'll touch on this in just a few minutes when we get to the Second Peter passage. But Noah was not actually a preacher in the way that we usually think of him. He wasn't on the street corner warning of impending judgment. That is nowhere in Genesis. It shows up a little bit in a couple later traditions in the Second Temple period in between the Testaments, and the New Testament references it slightly, but I don't think it actually means that he was going out trying to get people to repent and join him on the ark. It's actually saying that it's through his actions that he preached. You'll notice that it says that he prepared the ark by the which he judged the world. So it was in his building the ark that he judged the world and became an heir of righteousness by faith. Now we just have three more passages that we have to look at here, and they all come from the writings attributed to Peter. The first one is in 1 Peter 3, and Peter is very focused on talking to persecuted Christians about standing strong in their faith, not giving up on what they believe just because they are being persecuted for it and they're not seeing the return of Jesus happen as quickly as they expected. So he's trying to encourage them to keep at their faith and not give up. And so in 1 Peter 3.17, we pick up, It's better if the will of God be so that you suffer for well-doing than for evil. Because Christ also once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. By which he also went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. The like figure, whereunto even baptism, does also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I'm going to pause there because there is honestly an entire podcast's worth of information that we could talk about in just these few verses here, but I need to go very quickly here. The first thing that's a little weird is his talking about Christ preaching to the spirits in prison. And there are all kinds of different interpretations on what that could possibly be. 
We don't have time to get into those today. Any good commentary will give you a few different ideas. One thing that I do think is worth noting is that there was a tradition about Enoch preaching to the watchers and Nephilim of his day. So Peter appears to be taking that tradition and replacing Enoch with Jesus here. But again, that's something for another day. Let's look at verse 20. God saved eight souls by water. That makes sense so far. We have the eight being Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their wives. So that's eight people. Verse 21 is where it starts to get weird. And this is something that I'm guessing you probably have not heard preached very much. It's a difficult passage. Verse 21 reads, The like figure, whereunto even baptism now also saves us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In this passage and the second Peter, ones that we're going to get into in a second, part of the difficulty comes from archaic King James-style language that is in some of these translations. And part of that is just because it is kind of a difficult passage to translate well into English. But I like how the Net Bible put it, so let me quote this and I'll see if it gives any clarity to what's going on here. They translate it this way. And this prefigured baptism, which now saves you, not the washing off of physical dirt, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm guessing you can see why this would be a controversial verse. I would say the vast majority of Christians would claim that it is faith in Christ that saves a person. Now, what exactly that looks like is going to vary from tradition to tradition. But here we have very clearly Peter saying, baptism which now saves you. And so that trips up a lot of people because for the majority of Christians, that is going to be a very disturbing thought. How is anything other than faith in Jesus going to save you? How does baptism save you? And since that doesn't mesh with the majority Christian doctrines, it just gets overlooked, written off, said, well, we just, we have to read in light of other passages, but it's never really explained. I think a key that we have to understand is that salvation in the Bible is not always salvation from hell. This is definitely the topic for another podcast on another day, but I at least have to address it here if I have not already touched on it at some point before. Salvation is such a churchy word. We only think of you know preachers trying to save you from hell by praying a prayer in Jesus just because that's how we use it. But the word itself just means deliverance. It would be like if you talked about saving a drowning child in a lake or something like that, right? It's not saying that you saved their soul from hell. It's saying that you physically delivered them from death at that point. That is the base meaning of the word before you get any kind of churchy definition added to it. So that's initially what it meant here. It would be deliverance of some form or fashion. Now, sometimes that can be in a supernatural, spiritual, eternal destiny kind of way. There are some passages in scripture that address that sort of thing. However, what we usually call salvation is technically better defined by the word justification. See, salvation in the Bible is actually an umbrella term that can refer to three different things. One is justification, one is sanctification, and one is glorification. All three in the Bible are called salvation, but all three are very different things. Justification is the typical verses that you think of when you think about salvation, the stuff that is talking about being saved from hell, you know, the accepting Jesus as Savior, forgiveness of sins, all of that stuff. That's justification. 
Sanctification is talking about the way that you become more like Jesus, the way that you become a better person through your life. But that is rarely called sanctification. It's usually just called salvation. And then you also have passages that are about glorification, which would be a perfect salvation. That would be when you are in eternity, you no longer have a bent towards sin. But again, that is also called salvation. So just because you see salvation, the word in the Bible, does not mean that we are talking about salvation from hell in the sense that many preachers preach it. Now, it's possible, but whenever you see that word salvation, you have to ask yourself, is this justification, one-time salvation from sin? Is this sanctification, becoming a better person? Or is this glorification, being perfect in eternity? Because that can completely change the meaning of the passage. And I'll also throw in a fourth, sometimes it literally does just refer to deliverance. And this is a good example of that, where it's saying that the people were saved from the flood by the ark. That has nothing to do with their eternal destination. It has everything to do with their being delivered from physical death in the flood. So going back to this verse here, Peter is comparing baptism, which submerges you underwater, to being delivered in the flood, which was also a lot of water. Now, no one and his family were not submerged, but they passed through that, and the water became a symbol of their deliverance from that judgment. So he's saying that now water in this form can be a symbol of deliverance from your previous selfish ways of living into a more wholesome way of life that you're supposed to be pursuing once you take on the Christian faith. Now, obviously not everyone does that, but we're talking in ideals here. This is what you're supposed to be doing when you become a Christian. And so he's using baptism as a symbol of new regenerative life. This is something that he's not making up. It's actually coming from quite a tradition of use in the Tanakh. It starts off, honestly, at creation, when God brings new life out of the chaos waters. It continues with the story of Noah. It continues with Israel crossing the Red or Reed Sea and going into the Promised Land, where they also have to cross over Jordan to get there. There's imagery of deliverance through water even in the prophets. And then by the time you get to John and Jesus, you have baptism as something that has actually become a common symbol in Jewish life. Baptism was not originally a Christian thing. It was originally a Jewish thing where it was a symbol for somebody who maybe hadn't been taking their faith so seriously. And they're saying, I'm done living that way. Now I want to live more in line with my heritage, more in line with my faith. And the symbol of that was to be baptized. So it was a way of aligning yourself with the way of Yahweh. Now, Michael Heiser has done some context on this where he shows this is actually about spiritual warfare. And if that sounds really weird to you, remember verse 22 here. We're in 1 Peter 3, verse 22 talks about Jesus, after his resurrection, went into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers subject to him. Now, that sounds like nice Bible terminology, so we gloss over it. But we can't just gloss over it. There is a reason that Peter mentioned angels, authorities, powers because this is spiritual warfare. Baptism is not just a ritual that you do in your church. It is intended to be a symbol of your saying, I am no longer aligning myself with the spiritual powers of other nations. I am now aligning myself with Yahweh alone. Now, we have completely lost that meaning today because we don't live in a polytheistic culture. Our options of belief are basically believe in the Christian God, the Jewish version, the Muslim version, or atheism. That's what it boils down to for a lot of people, at least in America. 
Obviously, there are other religions and other options, but that's generally it. There isn't that much polytheism for the average person in America. But that would have been so ingrained in the minds of these people that they understood this baptism is a symbol of my being delivered from living under these pagan gods, and now I am aligning myself with Yahweh. So baptism as a Christian ritual took on all of that Jewish context and uh, added Jesus into it. So it's a very convoluted passage, but it's a very theologically dense and deep one that there's so much we could dig into there. But I just wanted to touch on that. And now we have to look at Peter's second letter, chapter two of Second Peter. We have more judgment language. And verse four reads, for if God did not spare the angels that sinned, and a lot of translations here will have something along the lines of cast them into hell, but really it's the word Tartarus turned into a verb form. So it's talking about these supernatural beings being imprisoned in the Greek supernatural cosmic prison for rebel angels called Tartarus. That's another conversation for another day. But Peter is talking about these Nephilim spirits. So the offspring of the sons of God and the human women with the Nephilim at the flood, they're wiped out. But how do you kill a god? Well, as far as we know, you can't. So since the watchers or sons of God were divine beings, they in a way still survived, but God imprisoned them in some sort of cosmic prison, according to Peter's theology here. And he says they were delivered to chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. And he didn't spare the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. And then he goes on to give a couple more examples of righteous people who were delivered from judgment. And this is also the passage where we get the idea that Lot was a righteous person. That's in verse 7 here. So I've addressed this already in the podcast, but Noah's being a preacher of righteousness does not mean that he was on the street corner with one of those double-sided signs trying to tell people that the end was coming. It was actually through his building the ark that he preached, quote-unquote, to the world of his time. Now, we have one other passage that Noah is in, and this is just a chapter later, chapter 3 of Second Peter, and this one is quite a doozy. Again, Peter is writing to persecuted people who are getting disappointed that they have not seen the return of Jesus. So he is trying to encourage them to keep at what they are doing. And he does that by saying, knowing this first, that there will come in the last days scoffers walking in their own lusts and saying, where's the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue like they were from the beginning of creation. For this they are willingly ignorant, that by the word of God the heavens of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, that's an interesting way of putting it, but that's talking about creation, God's creating out of the pre-existing chaos waters and dividing the waters, whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. But the heavens and earth, which now are, by the same word, are kept in store, now, this is going to be a little bit different depending on which translation you're reading. There's a lot of variation here because this is a very, very difficult passage to translate well into English. But I'll go ahead and read the traditional King James here because that's what a lot of people will know, and then I'll give a few other options. By the same word, they're kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, not willing that any should perish, but that all will come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. 
the earth also and the works that are therein will be burned up. Seeing then that all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation and godliness? This is a huge passage for people who believe that God is going to destroy the earth in fire one day. This is the kind of thing that I heard all the time growing up, that God destroyed the earth in the flood previously. He said that he wouldn't destroy by water again, so next time he has to destroy by fire in order to keep his promise. So we're just waiting for God to burn this whole thing up and start over. Now, again, this will 100% have to be its own podcast episode someday because this is a very, very complex chapter. But let me give you, again, the Net Bible here because I think that they pick up on some of the nuance that gets missed in the King James and some other versions. So this is picking up in verse 5. For they deliberately suppressed this fact, that by the word of God heavens existed long ago, and an earth was formed out of water and by means of water. Through these things the world existing at that time was destroyed when it was deluged with water. But by the same word the present heavens and earth have been reserved for fire by being kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. Now, dear friends, do not let this one thing escape your notice, that a single day is like a thousand years with the Lord, and a thousand years are like a single day. The Lord is not slow concerning his promise, as some regard slowness, but is being patient toward you, because he doesn't wish for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. When it comes, and here's where you need to pay attention to the difference, the heavens will disappear with a horrific noise, and the celestial bodies will melt away in a blaze, and the earth and every deed done on it will be laid bare. Since all these things are to melt away in this manner, what sort of people must we be by conducting our lives in holiness and godliness? Now I realize this is still a very complex passage, but I think the Net Bible gets closer to the actual meaning. And there's some text-critical issues here, there's some translation issues, again it's a very, very complicated passage to translate. But I think, along with several scholars, that Peter was quoting from Isaiah, specifically Isaiah 34 and verse 4. This should sound familiar to you. All the host of heaven will be dissolved, all the heavens will be rolled together as a scroll, and all their host will fall down as a leaf falls from the vine and as a falling fig from the fig tree. And it continues with quite a bit more language of judgment. So this is very, very similar language to what Peter was saying in 2 Peter 3, so I think it's reasonable to suggest he's drawing off of this. Well, the interesting thing about Isaiah 34 is it was speaking of judgment in Isaiah's day. So when Isaiah is saying that all the host of heaven will be dissolved and the heavens will be rolled together as a scroll and all their host will fall down, he was talking about in his time. Now, that has obviously not happened in a physical sense. Like, we still have the skies above us, and we still have the stars above us. So, what's going on? Brian Gadawa, the guy that I quoted a lot in our Sacred Nightmare series, had a really good note on this passage that I think helps to understand what's going on. And he says, When that same Babylon destroyed Israel and led her into captivity in that same time period, the same prophet Isaiah predicted in vivid poetic language that the earth would be completely laid waste and despoiled. The earth is split and broken asunder, that's Isaiah 24, 19. Something that did not and could not happen physically or scientifically, but it was symbolic. And then Isaiah says that in this event of judgment, God will simultaneously punish the earthly rulers together with their heavenly counterparts, the hosts of heaven, or the watchers, the principalities of power over the people. Isaiah 24 talks about the confounding of the moon and the shaming of the sun. 
Those are poetic ways of saying that the principalities and powers will be humbled by their defeat. One cannot confound the physical moon or shame the physical sun. I think Gadawa is right on point with this. The language that Peter is drawing on here is not talking about the actual skies above us or the actual sun in the sky. He is using this terminology to refer to supernatural beings. Very, very standard Bible language talking about the hosts of heaven to refer not just to stars, planets, sun, moon, all of that, but also to spiritual beings. So when he says that the elements are going to be dissolved and the heavens are going to be on fire, that is not talking about God's burning the earth, but it's actually talking about his judging the supernatural beings who abused their power over the nations. It also helps to realize that some of this burning language is questionable in translation of what exactly it should be particularly at the end of verse 10, where it says that the earth and all of the works that are therein will be burned up. There's a good argument that can be made that the word is actually slightly different than what some translations have, and that rather than meaning burn, it's a word that actually means to discover or uncover. And that better fits the Isaiah passage and the context here in 2 Peter 3. It would not make sense for Peter to be talking about Jesus is still coming, don't give up, Oh, and by the way, everything's going to be destroyed. It makes more sense if he says, a day is coming soon when everything is going to be revealed, when everything is going to be unveiled, and we're going to understand what's actually going on in the world. So again, we don't have any more time that we can put into this. It's a very complex passage, but I was teasing this out throughout the series, and I wanted to make sure I actually touched on it. This passage does not have to mean that God is going to burn up the entire world. It's very possible, and I personally think more likely, that it's saying there's coming a day where God is going to judge everyone, including supernatural beings, and make everything laid bare, everything plain, and we will understand what has been going on in the world. That happens at the second coming of Christ. Not a destruction of the world, but a revealing of the spiritual realm alongside the physical. Okay, that gives you a summary of the remaining times that Noah is brought up and how that story is used throughout the rest of the Bible. Now, on to the questions that y'all have sent in. Round two of question and response. We have your questions. We will do our best to give some response. So we have the lovely Jana back here with us today. Hello. Jana, welcome back to this side of the podcast. You're usually on the editing and producing end and all of that, but she's here today to read your questions. So Jana, let's get started. Question number one. So listening to episodes 17 and 18 on Genesis 7 and 8, and I always assumed that the flood was a worldwide flood. The thought of a regional flood was heretical. Now I'm open to the idea. I always thought the purpose of the flood was to get rid of all the horrible things going on in the world. Pagan worship, angels with human women, etc. So with that being said, does that mean not everyone was killed during the flood? If it was regional, people outside of that region obviously would have been okay. Also, if I'm not mistaken, aren't there Nephilim after the flood too? So is it possible not all of them were killed either? Well, there is a lot to that. <laughs> There's a lot of questions in that question. But it's really good, and I totally sympathize with their saying that a regional flood was a heretical idea. 
that's how I was raised too. So I'm very happy to hear that that's no longer how you're thinking. And again, I'm not trying to push one view of this over the other, but I'm definitely trying to push a move from viewing any of these positions as heretical, so really glad to hear that. One little, this is a nitpick, but I wanted to make sure I, I brought this up. I know what they mean, but they said that one of the purposes of the Flood was to deal with angels with the human women. Technically, they weren't angels. It was the sons of God, sometimes called the Watchers, so they were divine beings, but not quite angels. Gods would be a better term. The New Testament sometimes calls them angels, so it's okay, but I think gods probably would be the better term there. So let's just address what they said here. With that being said, does it mean that not everyone was killed during the flood? Simple answer, yes, probably. And the key to this is we have to look at what the word world means in the Bible. One thing that it definitely never means is globe. So whenever you see the word world in the Bible, don't think about the globe, the planet, as we think of it today. They didn't have a context for that in the ancient world. They didn't know it was a globe. That wasn't their idea of the planet. So just scratch that one out. That's not what it means. You have a couple other definitions that are possible. The word world can mean the entire known world to them at the time. So this would be the Middle East, the northern parts of Africa, parts of Asia, and the southern parts of Europe. But they didn't know about the rest of the world. They didn't know about the Americas, Australia, North and South Poles, you know, Antarctica. They didn't know about that sort of thing. So it could just be referring to the world as they knew it, what they thought was the world. Sometimes it's also referring to just the region where this story took place. It can just mean land. So in this case, it would be Mesopotamia, basically modern-day Iran, maybe some of Iraq. Sometimes also in the Bible, the word world can mean the land of Israel, because it's not meaning world as in globe, but rather just the land. But since Israel wasn't a people yet, I think we can write that one off. So really it comes down to, do you think that when the Bible says world here, or land, is it referring to everyone that they knew of in the world at this time? Or is it just referring to the region in which the story took place? Either way, you still end up with people in parts of the world that they didn't know about. So they're not talking about whether people in North and South America or the far reaches of Asia or anything like that survived the flood, because they wouldn't have even known that there were people there. So yes, no matter which way you look at this, unless you're taking like a Ken Ham style of the flood saying that the entire globe was covered, there would have been people who survived the flood. Now, to the writers of the Bible, no. No, there weren't, because they didn't know about those other people. They didn't matter to the story. But there would have been people who survived the flood because the flood just didn't happen in their area. The Bible is not interested in telling their story. It's trying to tell the story of the people in that region. And like you very astutely pointed out, the Nephilim do show up again after the flood. Right in Genesis 6, it says that the Nephilim were in the earth in those days and also after that. Now, the Bible does not make clear how that happened. How did they end up in the earth again after the flood? You ask the question, is it possible that not all the Nephilim were killed? It is possible. That is one explanation. However, I think that the Bible is implying that they were all killed in the flood. Because it says that the mountains, or some translations might say the high hills, were covered. And I think the implication of that is not to say how high the flood was, oh, it was over Everest. No, it brings up the mountains or the high hills because that's where the gods lived. 
So since the gods were seen to be living on tops of the mountains, by saying that the flood covered those high areas, those high places, it was saying that even the gods could not escape Yahweh's judgment on the earth. So I think the implication is they died. Now, how they came back, the Bible is not clear. And actually, for the very first time in my life, I think I may have a theory as to how they did. And I could be totally wrong on this. For years now, I have puzzled over how the Nephilim could come back. It's like Palpatine in Episode Nine of Star Wars. Somehow Palpatine returned, right? It's, it's not explained clearly. But I think I have a theory, and it comes down to the Tower of Babylon. Because if you listen to our episode on the Tower of Babylon, it was not made for the people to go up. The tower was a ziggurat that was intended for the gods to come down. And we mentioned that contrary to popular belief, the tower was actually completed. So I have a theory that maybe the gods actually did come back down on that tower. The people were living in a lowlands area. They didn't have mountains for the gods to come back down on. So they had to create their own mountain, if you will, in the form of this ziggurat to invite a Genesis 6 event to happen again. And again, the text does not ever say that that's what happened, but that is my theory right now. This is something that people have debated on for a long time because, yes, the Nephilim show up, and so do the Cainites. Cain's descendants would have been completely wiped out in the flood, yet there are Cainites that show up again after the flood. And people try to give different theories. Well, maybe these are just people who had a different ancestor named Cain after the flood that we don't know about. Or maybe these were people who just named themselves after Cain. Maybe? People have gotten really weird with it and even said maybe Noah's wife was from the line of Cain or one of his daughters-in-law. Some traditions even have people stowing away on the Ark as uh, like someone from the line of Cain. A lot of times it would be someone like Lamech. That was actually in Darren Aronofsky's 2014 Noah movie where Lamech stowed away on the Ark. Uh, so different theories have been presented to try to answer this question, but it's not something that's clearly stated in the Bible. So we kind of have to guess at what actually happened there. But yeah, good thoughts and keep looking into that because there's definitely some different options. Question two, you made reference to consuming animals in episode 19. I'm not opposed to people eating meat, but I am against how we raise and kill animals today in America. It doesn't seem that God intended for us to do it this way. What are your thoughts on this? Somebody else sent in another question that was very similar, so part two to this question is, if animals are raised to be killed and eaten, is there any truly humane way to do that? Isn't that just their purpose? Yeah, this really gets into some deep thought here, and I love how a lot of the questions we've gotten so far aren't actually like just about the passage that we've been studying, it's about applying these passages. So you all listening to this have really been thinking it through and trying to see how it changes the way you view the world, and I love that. This is a very tough question. I will say right up front, I am not vegan or vegetarian. I enjoy a good steak. <laughs> I enjoy eating meat. But I think that there is a solid Bible case that can be made that the Bible intent for people, the ideal, if you will, was to be vegetarian. Now, there are passages like chapter 9 of Genesis and then again in Acts with Peter's vision where God allows for the eating of meat. It's not like it's sinful in the Bible. But I do think you can make a case that the ideal is for us not to be killing animal life. In the tradition I grew up in, it was very much humans as the priority. If you tried to do anything about animal rights or advocacy, 
you were a tree hugger, you were a liberal, you were part of why America isn't great anymore. You know, it was that sort of thing. But the way the Bible presents it is very different. And I've tried to touch on this in our series through Genesis 1 to 11. But God is very compassionate toward his entire creation, not just humans. And he grieves the mistreatment of any part of creation, be that human, animal, or even plants. So I don't think it's healthy to have this view of, well, God's just going to burn it all up one day, so let's just use it up, kill whatever we want. And I don't think that's the way we're supposed to do it. Now, I am not a hunter. That does not appeal to me. I know plenty of good people who are. I am not saying that you are evil if you like to hunt, but there's just something about killing an animal that I don't like that thought. I don't like the thought of having to kill any life form. That's what video games are for for me. That's why I play Assassin's Creed, so I don't have to do that in real life. But we are just so removed in modern-day America from the way that animals are raised and then slaughtered for food. And that's not the way that people have lived throughout history. Honestly, that's not even the way that Americans have lived up until the Industrial Revolution about 150 years ago, if even that. Throughout most of history, you didn't just slaughter animals and eat meat, unless maybe you were royalty. Like, you didn't have the animals to waste. You needed the cows for their milk. You needed the chickens for their eggs, you know, so forth and so on. You didn't just go around slaughtering the animals. You needed them. And it was only when they died that you then went ahead and ate them. So I think that could actually play into the second question that that other person brought up is like, is there any humane way to do this? Well, the way a lot of people have done it through history is you just wait for them to die. And then when they do, that's when you eat them. But yeah, today we have this whole system where we raise animals to be slaughtered. And a lot of times, uh, if you've ever watched a documentary on this or something, it's pretty horrifying. A lot of times these animals are raised with just shoulder to shoulder, side to side, no room to move. They're walking in their own crap, quite literally, and there's just no basic dignity for them. And I honestly, I, I almost hate to say this because it's so different from how I was raised, but I actually I agree with the question that this person is bringing up here. I don't think that the way that we raise and slaughter animals today is the way it's intended, and I don't really think it's pleasing to God. The problem is we don't live in a world anymore that allows for a more ethical consumption of meat easily. See, this goes back to the Industrial Revolution. You would not normally be eating meat. It was expensive because animals took a lot of money to raise. But it was only once we were able to mass produce and raise these en masse that we were able to lower the costs. If you try to buy humanely raised meat or poultry or anything like that in the store, you're going to be paying a few dollars more a pound than you would for just the normal meat or poultry or whatever you can get at Walmart or wherever your local store is. Because it's harder to do it the right way. And life is just really complicated in the world that we live in today. I remember, Jenna, not that long ago we were watching the Good Place TV show. And as you go on in the show, that kind of becomes the big theme is like, the world's complicated and how can you be a good person in the way that the world is today? Because let's move this outside of food. Let's take it into just the normal products and shopping that you do on a daily basis. I don't think anyone listening to this is thrilled with the way that Walmart or Amazon treats their employees. 
you know, Amazon delivery drivers getting a minimum wage and having to work like 12 hour shifts for eight hour pay, not even being able to stop for a restroom break because they have to get everything in. That's not good. And yet how many of you listening, and I'll include myself in this, are going to buy things off of Amazon for Christmas this year? How many of you have shopped at Walmart in the last month? And if not those, what other <laughs> stores? Like, we just live in this corporate world where if you try to boil it down, you're going to find that you don't agree with anyone. So what do you do? Do you boycott Walmart or Amazon or Target or whatever because they don't fit your ethical values? Okay, well, how far do you take that? Because then what store can you find that does? There's going to be something that you disagree with. And then you have to look at the products. Even if you could find a store that's more ethical, what products do they sell? Because you can look at plenty of different products today where there's child labor in other countries or just some mistreatment of the people in that region or of the land itself. So eventually, if you just take this down to its natural conclusion, you're going to want to be a subsistence farmer. But then let's look at that. Where do you buy the seeds for your crops from? You're going to probably have to get it from someone who has different values than you do. So it's almost like you just, you cannot win in the world that we live in today. The ethics of the Bible were made for a small world, and they are really hard to extrapolate into a big world today. So this is something where I have to be honest and say, I don't have answers, and I think the majority of us are going to be a little bit hypocritical in how we apply this. And I'm definitely putting myself in that category because this sort of thing bugs me, but I still shop at Walmart. I still shop at Amazon. Yeah, I still get some of these products because it's so hard. My options are basically either spend my entire paycheck and several hours trying to shop around and find things that are more ethically sourced or spend a couple hundred dollars and an hour at Walmart. And that's just a lot simpler to do. So it's really, really hard. And there are some people where this just doesn't bother them. And if that's where your conscience is on it, you know, okay, I would say try to be conscientious about it, but I'm not going to guilt someone over having a different conscience on this issue. Some people are able to find some comfort in being able to get something like you know, free-range meat or something along those lines. But even then, you're taking the word of the person who packaged it that it truly was free-range. Sometimes that just means there's a field out in the back by the animals, but they never actually go there. So you don't ever truly know in the world that we live in anymore. And, and I'm sorry, this is kind of a depressing response. Some people look at it and they just go straight vegan or vegetarian on this to avoid that sort of thing. But then again, I think you have to look at all of the products that you do. So this is going to be a conscience issue for a lot of people. And I would say that even if you don't completely overhaul your life over this sort of thing, it is something where we should be conscientious of what's going on. We should be aware of these practices. Uh, you can draw attention to them and maybe, when possible, uh, get it through local means or somewhere where you actually know the ethics behind how the meat was raised or the product was made. Good thoughts. No easy answers for that one. Question three, you spoke a little about the status of today's church in episode 19. Coming from an abusive church, I have no interest in attending another one. In your opinion, what would be an ideal biblical gathering of believers, size, place, time, finances, etc., that wouldn't foster the abuse that is evident in so many of today's corporate churches? Wow. Well, first, I want to say I'm sorry that that was your experience with church 
And not just that was your experience, but also that I'm sure what comes with that is people who were a part of that community not understanding the ways that you were hurt by that church. Spiritual abuse is very real, and that's not something that we talk about enough, so I want to validate that. And I'm sorry that that is what you experienced. You are definitely not alone. There are a lot of other people who are dealing with that, and maybe they don't have the terms for it. But I totally understand what you're saying. And yeah, it's very real. Churches can hurt, and that sucks. And it leaves marks. I will say, this is something that I am very passionate about because it is not talked about enough. And in this next year, 2024, we're going to start having more resources available for spiritual and emotional abuse to understand what is going on and how to deal with some of the healing journey. January is actually considered to be Spiritual Abuse Awareness Month. It's not as popular as some other months like that, but I'm going to do hopefully at least one episode, possibly more in January, dealing with this issue and, and probably some shorts as well. So keep an eye out for those, I would say. As for church, you ask, what would be an ideal Bible gathering of believers? And I, I totally feel you on this one, because this is a question I've asked myself before, too. I have some background in spiritually and emotionally abusive religious situations, and I trained to be a pastor. I spent four years in a Bible college for this, and then another year getting a master's degree in Bible-based counseling for this. And after everything that I've dealt with in churches over the last several years, I'm at a point, uh, I'm just being honest with you all listening right now, some people may not like this, but it's just where I am. I do not have an interest in pastoring a church right now. I'm not saying I never will, but I don't want that kind of power. I don't want to deal with the finances. I don't want to deal with the legal side of incorporation. I don't want to deal with people thinking that I'm their voice for God. So I've tried to think about that. Like if I were actually to start a church, how would I do it? And when you boil it down, what do I do? I find a few people who kind of think the same way I do. They're fed up with standard religion. So we start meeting together. Uh, we're all busy, so we're going to meet together once a week. Well, when do we do that? Well, how about the weekends when we're not working? So let's just say Sunday. So we get together on Sunday. And how long is it until, to set the mood beforehand, I start playing a little bit of music off of my Echo Dot and then how long until someone there says, oh, you know what, I really like singing and I want to share this song I really love. So then you got special music. How long until then the congregation, quote unquote, grows to a point they can no longer meet in my little apartment and I have to rent out a space? Well, I don't have the money to do that, so I have to take up an offering in order to get a space for us to meet. And within just a little while, I've just created a church, again, that is the exact same as all these other institutional churches. Honestly, this is something that almost every generation for the last 2,000 years has been trying to figure out because it just kind of reinvents itself as a problem. And maybe I shouldn't say 2,000 years because through a lot of history, Christians have been persecuted and there still are parts where they are today. So maybe just more recently in a place like America, we have tried to reimagine this. Now you had mega churches, and then you had the emerging church movement, and you have home churches as a response to the mega churches, and we just kind of keep going in circles where we're trying to figure out a way to not make an abusive church culture. And I am by no means saying that every church out there is abusive. There are some good ones, for sure. There are many, though, that are spiritually and emotionally abusive in ways that they don't even realize. And I think that's just going to be inherent in any organization 
Anytime you have a system of people put together, it is going to be the sum of both the good and the bad of those people. And that's why I like doing this podcast, because I'm not trying to create a following. I'm not trying to get a bunch of people who are giving money to me. Like, yes, we ask for a a little bit of support sometimes for the podcast. But honestly, if you were going to try to give me money for this, I would probably first just recommend that you turn it into cash and you give it to the first homeless guy you see on the corner of your town. Or you, instead of going out and passing out tracks every Saturday for two hours, you find a homeless shelter and go there for two hours on Saturday. Or your local Salvation Army or community center or something like that. Because I totally get what you're asking about an ideal biblical gathering. But I would actually encourage you, think less about what would make a better church and just focus instead on your own spiritual journey. Because personally, I don't know that there is a way you can build a church without it having the exact same problems every other church does within a few generations. It will always happen, and I think these churches just have to reinvent themselves. So, you know, you hear churches complain about the young people leaving. I think it's a good thing, because every generation just needs to restart this experiment over and figure it out from the ground up. But what you can do is focus on your own spiritual journey because then you can do that outside of church, and you're only responsible for you. So if anything in your doctrine or your beliefs starts to get abusive toward anyone else, you can correct that, because it is just you. So I appreciate the question. I don't have a good answer for that one, but I would say maybe let's redirect the question away from how can we create a church that isn't abusive to how can we develop our own spirituality that is healthy because then you can have that with or without a church body. Question four. Why is there so much incest in the Bible? (laughs) I love this one. uh, Short and to the point. (laughs) And, And yeah, there is a lot of weird sexual encounters in the Bible, and a lot of it does count as incest. We have that with Noah and his son Ham. We have it with Abraham and Sarah, because technically she is, what I think, his half-sister in the story, or niece, something along those lines. She's a very close relative. You have Judah and Tamar later on in Genesis. You have David's daughter, Tamar, and her stepbrother, Ammon. So this happens quite a bit in the Bible story, where you have these incestuous relationships. And uh, yeah, that's not exactly what you expect in something like the Bible, when you tend to treat it as a children's book. But I think we have to remember, this is not a children's book. This is good quality literature with plot conflicts and complicated characters and complex storylines. And so we don't have to clean up the Bible and make it some sort of PG book that you could read in an elementary school. This is something where if it was turned into a movie, it would be a very hard R rating, possibly worse than that. Because the Bible isn't just trying to get morality across to you. It's trying to tell you stories. And particularly in Genesis, we have this setup of Israel's future enemies as being the result of incestuous relationships. So those stories are there to make a theological point. It's, it's honestly a pretty like middle school type of yo mama joke insulting the ancestors of these other people. When you think about it, the majority of Israel's enemies were Canaanites, and they came from Canaan, who came from the incestuous relationship with Ham and his mother. And then you have others that are the 
Ammonites and Moabites from later on in the story from Lot and his daughters having sex. So those are other enemies of Israel. So th this is just a way for the Jewish authors to insult their enemies and say, you all are a bunch of descendants of inbreeding. And then the rest of the Bible story builds on these initial stories that are here. Like, I'm sure at some point we'll finish Genesis in a later series. But as you go later on and you have the story of Jacob and his 12 sons, Judah ends up in a really weird situation where he had gotten a wife for his firstborn son. The firstborn son dies, and he's supposed to get a new husband for his daughter-in-law. But he keeps putting it off, so eventually the daughter-in-law, whose name was Tamar, says, if I am going to keep any kind of inheritance, any kind of legacy in this family, I need to be able to get married and have a child. So she decides to go out, dress as a prostitute, and it just so happens that the person who comes across her is her father-in-law. And he pays for sex with her, finds out that she's pregnant, and then the really interesting thing is that he praises her for it. We would not expect that in the Bible. But she is praised for going and acting as a prostitute here because it allowed her to stay within the family when her father-in-law was not acting properly toward her the way that he was supposed to within their legal system. So it's a really weird story, but I bring it up because later in 2 Samuel 13, we have the story of some of David's children and, you know, step-siblings, where one of them, Amnon, rapes his stepsister who is also named Tamar. Now, these are the only two women in the entire Bible named Tamar. So that is no coincidence at all. Now, their stories are a little bit different because the first Tamar with Judah had a little more agency. She went out as a prostitute. The Tamar in 2 Samuel had no agency there. She was completely raped. She was not at fault for any of that. If you ever hear a preacher try to say otherwise, you need to leave that church immediately. But the, the stories are mapping onto each other and comparing Judah and David because David was from the line of Judah. So the Bible uses these stories, and sometimes they're quite sordid, to get these theological points across. A lot of times it's less about the story itself and more about the theological point behind it that they're trying to share. But yeah, there, there is a lot of sex in the Bible, a lot that you're not taught in Sunday school because the Bible is not a children's book. It's not a book of moral tales. It is a story about these people and how they came to develop the faith that they had. So yeah, sometimes the Bible is R-rated and more, and we just have to let those uncomfortable passages be there and not try to clean them up. All right, thank you all for sending in your questions. Remember, you can do that at any time, even if you are catching up and it's later on, we can try to go back and address questions from previous series. Our next one will be sometime in the new year. We have one more episode that we have to put out this year, and it is going to be a Christmas one. I'm looking forward to this. It's going to be fun. I'm doing some study for it right now, so looking forward to that. And then just give you all a heads up, we are going to take a couple of weeks off at the end of this year, and then probably the first week or so of January, just to give us a chance to rest, enjoy the holidays, and get set up for the next year. We have a lot of exciting new material coming up. So until then, stay curious and keep asking questions about the Uncut and Unfiltered Bible. You've been listening to the Bible Uncut and Unfiltered. We hope we provided a healing place to discuss the questions you can't ask and the context you won't learn in church. If you enjoyed the podcast, would you take a minute to share it with a friend? 
You could also rate and review on your podcast app. If you'd like to donate to keep our work going, you can go to our website, thebibleuncut.com, and click on the Support Us tab. While you're there, check out the recommended resources and blog where we post show notes and other articles. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.